Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Lauren. Mike. Lauren, how badly do you want to edit your tweets? So by that, I think you mean how badly do I want to edit my tweets? And oh, yeah. OK, it. let me yeah, let me let me ask you that question again. How badly do you want to edit your tweets? OK, is there a timestamp where I can go back and, and call up your former mistake if I need to when you said badly? That would be a good feature. That would be a good feature. I have to be totally honest. I don't I don't have super strong opinions on editing tweets because I, I don't think we should be able to edit tweets. I'm with you on that one. Really? Yes. I am. And we'll talk about that and much more on this week's show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We are also joined this week by journalist Casey Newton, who writes the Platformer Substack and covers all things related to social media, technology, and democracy. Casey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, y'all. Of course. Hey, neighbor. (laughs) We could not think of a better person to bring on this week because today we are talking about Twitter. In the second half of the show, the three of us are going to talk about how we use Twitter and we'll share some of our thoughts about the future of the social platform. But first, we have to grill Casey because we want to talk about some of the disruption that's been happening at Twitter lately. And yes, That means we need to talk about Elon Musk. Last week, after acquiring 9% of Twitter's stock and stepping back from a company board seat, Elon suddenly announced that he wanted to buy the whole darn thing. Musk, who is the richest person in the world, by the way, put in a bid to buy Twitter for $43 billion with the intention of taking the company private. Now, Casey, you've written both about Twitter and Elon Musk quite a bit in your excellent newsletter that everybody should subscribe to. So I need to ask you, is this for real on a scale of one to 10, 10 being absolutely yes. How likely is it that Elon will actually end up buying Twitter? Well, so, you know, my my joke about this is that all evidence points to the fact that he's not serious about it, which uh, by what I call the trickster God theory of Elon Musk suggests that he is likely <laughs> to buy it. Uh, basically, everything that I've thought about Elon Musk and Twitter has been wrong up until this point. And so while I continue to believe that it's unlikely that he will acquire it, uh, there's a voice in the back of my head saying, oh, well, you know, this this may mean that he actually is going to acquire it. And what would it take financially for this to happen? 
So he needs $40 billion, and he's the world's richest man. But as uh, the Wall Street Journal wrote in a a good piece, Elon Musk is cash poor. Most of his money is tied up in Tesla stock, SpaceX stock, and if he wants to get access to it, he's going to have to sell a lot of it, which he may be unwilling to do. He could also go out and find partners to help him put up the money, Um, but during a recent TED Talk, he said that he had no economic interest in Twitter at all, which I suspect may be a hindrance in lining up people to give him $40 billion. So it is as chaotic as you would expect from Elon Musk. He is such a chaos Muppet. It's like unbelievable. Okay, so so what is the appeal? Why does he want to buy Twitter? Well, there is what he has said, which is a series of fairly skeletal pronouncements that boil down to there's not enough free speech on Twitter and free speech is important for the survival of civilization. And so under his control, it would be more free speech oriented. He has not really weighed in on many specific scenarios in content moderation that he thinks have gone awry. Of course, Twitter's most famous content moderation decision in the past couple of years is deplatforming Donald Trump. But Musk has been no particular friend to Trump over the years or vice versa, so it's not clear that that's his sole mission. But because he has been such a blank canvas, conservatives in particular have really rallied around him, and they they seem to believe that Elon Musk will give them the the version of Twitter that that they want. Right. There are some on the conservative side of the political aisle who believe that Twitter would basically become some kind of free-for-all or anyone could say anything. But I think this, once again, shows that there, there is and continues to be serious confusion between what constitutes free speech in this country here in the United States and what constitutes free speech for a publicly traded social media company that happens to operate in the private sector and also has its own terms of service. So actually does still have rules around what people can and cannot say. So please like illuminate us. Like would Elon buying Twitter make a difference in terms of the speech that's allowed on the platform? I mean, it's it's so hard to say because it's not clear to me that Elon Musk has given thought to what will happen five minutes after the deal closes. There is not a plan. He's said he doesn't have any confidence in management. So presumably he would go out and hire a bunch of new managers. Who would those people be? I don't know. My sources at Twitter tell me that if Musk became the CEO, you would see chaos and mass attrition. Um, I think a lot of the current top executives would leave the company. And they would have to figure out how to <laughs> how to do a lot of things. So, you know, I don't know. But okay, let's say he comes in and he brings in his um, team of uh, pro-free speech people and they want to sort of do Twitter policy from scratch. What would you do? Well, maybe you take a look at policies that currently require tweets to be labeled if they contain misinformation of one sort or another. Maybe you stop labeling state media. Maybe you stop hiding certain things from search results. There are certainly things that you could do to elevate speech that is currently uh, downranked or banned in particular, but I think the idea that this is going to bring in tens of millions or hundreds of millions of lapsed Twitter users is pretty laughable on its face. I'm one of those people who is of the opinion that the downranking that you're talking about and the deplatforming you've been talking about are 
good things. If anybody who's listening to the show has read your work or has read Lauren's work or just follows, you know, social media platforms, they know that like content moderation is very, very difficult and very tricky to get right. Nobody gets it right. So one of the things that Elon has said he wants to do is he wants to allow all legal speech on Twitter. This means that spam will not be moderated on Twitter, that bots can do whatever they want on Twitter without moderation, false information and false claims uh, of a political nature or of a cultural nature can be retweeted and amplified as as much as the bots want. Um, also, hate speech will have a forum on Twitter. So like, it does not sound like those things would be a positive for the platform. Well, I mean, and you know, maybe you were teeing me up for this, but two of the specific things that Elon Musk said immediately after saying, all legal speech should be allowed on Twitter is that he wants to get rid of all of the spam and the bots. <laughs> so it's like to the extent that he has concrete proposals for Twitter, they are somewhat contradictory. Um, and, you know, I mean, like even just to talk a little bit about bots, there are clearly some bad bots, right? Like if the Kremlin is purchasing tens of thousands of Twitter accounts to run disinformation campaigns on Americans, I, I would think most of us would agree that's a bad use of bots. But there are also bots that just like tell you the weather or like the time of day in another part of the world um, or like, you know, let you know when the New York Times corrects something online. And I don't think all of those bots should be banned, right? In fact, like a lot of things, it would probably benefit from just some labeling, right? Which I actually think Twitter mm -hmm. has uh, recently started to implement. So there are some clear things that they could do on that front. But but just again, just to highlight, you know, in my experience, when someone introduces a plan with this many internal contradictions, it's, it's a sign they haven't thought about it all that much. So we probably sound pretty down on the idea of Elon Musk buying Twitter. And I think that's partly because it's just hard to know how serious he is about it or how much of this is just a whim gone too far. But what might be some of the upsides if this actually happened? So it is true that basically forever, Twitter has been disappointing as a business. There was kind of a fork in the road moment that the company faced maybe a little over a decade ago when they were trying to figure out what, what kind of business are we going to be? They could have decided to become uh, a, a protocol, right? And, and essentially sell the API that let other people build third-party clients and other kinds of experiences. But because they had hired a bunch of ex-Googlers, the ex-Googlers came in and they said, why don't we just build an ad business? Like, we've got a feed, ads are in feeds now, we've, we'll just be an ads business. And they just have not been nearly as good of an ads business as Google or Facebook or now Amazon are at that. And so as a result, Twitter has lost more money than it has earned. And up until very recently, they have also not shipped a lot of new product experiences. And so Twitter really has been kind of one of the great underperforming tech stocks of the past 10 years. So even setting Musk aside, there has long been this assumption that if you brought in other managers, other leaders, you could probably have a company that was better for shareholders. So, you know, to the extent that you think Elon Musk can realize that vision, you might think there's something to be done here. Before we move on, I just I want to talk a little bit about how Twitter has responded to this. Um, there are many strategies to stop some sort of hostile takeover or a, a, a shareholder trying to buy up all the shares to take a company private. What has Twitter done? There's been a lot of talk about uh, the poison pill defense, and uh, we'd like to ask you to explain this and tell us a little bit about how frequently this is uh, implemented in these kind of corporate battles. 
Yeah, so, the, so when, when the board of directors at a company does not want someone to uh, make a, a hostile takeover bid, they adopt a shareholder rights plan, more commonly called a poison pill. And the idea is you make it extremely unpalatable for the potential acquirer to acquire more stock. So Elon Musk has like 9.2%-ish of Twitter right now. Twitter's poison pill said you cannot get above 15%. And if you do go above 15%, we're going to enable every other Twitter shareholder to purchase more shares at a steep discount. Um, and so in practice, the would-be acquirer then stops buying stock because the stock becomes less and less valuable. You know, it's, it's essentially a mechanism for um, making any additional stock purchases worthless, not worth the trouble. And so that's what, what Twitter has adopted. And in practice, this is a strategy for getting the would-be acquirer to the negotiating table so that they can uh, come to terms that are more mutually agreeable. All right. Well, let's take a quick break right now. And when we come back, we're going to have a spirited debate about the edit button. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. It's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. So all things Elon Musk aside, Twitter has evolved a lot over the last 15 years. For some, it is still a delight. It's where people find their community. For others, it's a cesspool of abuse and manufactured outrage. On top of that, most people on the internet don't understand how it works and they don't even hang out there. So it's a complicated place that is always evolving. We want to talk about what's next in that evolution. We should note that before and during the whole Elon saga, Twitter has been talking about making some other potential changes, including adding the ability for users to edit their tweets. Casey, what do you think? Is an edit button a good idea? An edit button is a great idea on Twitter for the same reason it's a great idea on every other text box on the internet where you're allowed to fix a mistake. Human beings are frail and a world in which we are expected to live up to the expectations of robots and software uh, is a nightmare dystopia. Um, <laughs> we're, we're fallible creatures. 
We make typos. <laughs> when we attempt to fix those typos on Twitter by deleting our posts, we break threads, we leave orphan comments, and we, of course, we give up all that sweet, precious engagement. So to me, all of the people who say that editing tweets is a terrible idea are just revealing a failure of their own imagination as product thinkers. So that's interesting. I don't I don't think it's a terrible idea. And I see what you're saying. Like I can edit a comment on Facebook right now or my Instagram caption or something I've posted on Reddit because everyone knows I'm such a shit poster on Reddit. Um, I'm really, I don't spend that much time on Reddit. But um, but I guess like, um, and this is me coming from like a sort of a, a relatively privileged place on the internet, but also someone who has experienced harassment on the internet. Um, which is like, I, I feel like the changes I would want to make personally would be relatively inconsequential. Like I do make, I do have typos and I do sometimes post something where someone might like, you know, come in with some kind of correction or insight, not necessarily like a well actually, but like a legitimate kind of no, but have you considered this? And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that's that's a good point. Like I can see how my first tweet doesn't really encapsulate that. Um, but like, I, I, you know, I personally am not like, writing hateful things or saying like storm the capital. So I guess I, it feels to me a little bit low stakes to necessarily have to edit my tweets. I, sure. I agree with you, you know, I'm and I, I'm going to go on the record here saying that I'm firmly against an edit button. I don't, I do not think that people should be able to edit their tweets after they post them. Um, but I agree with you. It does feel pretty low stakes. You know, if somebody makes a typo, we were all used to seeing typos on Twitter. It's been 15 damn years at this point. We all make uh, mistakes whenever we're typing text messages or slacks. And yes, you can edit slacks. I know. Bad example. But you understand what I mean. Like we've come up with a, a mechanism for signaling to each other that we made a mistake and that we want to correct it. Or if we see a mistake, we understand that it's a simple typo and we don't you know, come down on the person or judge them or, you know, make fun of them too much because we all do it. Right. So it's just sort of like a collective understanding that there are going to be mistakes happening here. Small mistakes, larger mistakes are more difficult, right? Like if the link that you tweeted all of a sudden goes dark, you follow up and you say, here's a better link or that link is broken. Somebody cached it. Here it is. And I think that's useful to have, to have that sort of like record of how things progressed in a conversation. That's just the way that I, uh, it's the way that I feel. Well, but I mean, think about the scenario in which you've tweeted something and it goes viral and then you find out that you made like a big factual mistake, right? Or maybe the thing that you tweeted is no longer true, right? Maybe you tweeted, oh my God, my house is on fire. Somebody please save me. And you get 10,000 likes and then the firemen come and put out your house. But then, you know, three days later, people are still like, you know, trying to come uh, help you with your fire situation. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you could just do another tweet, but we all know that's not going to get nearly the reach that the first one did. Most people won't bother going to your timeline to check out what you tweet. What if you could just update? the tweet. What if you could say, hey, everybody, great news. The fire is out at my house, right? We found the missing person. We found the missing dog. Um, I thought this was true, but actually it was false. You know, everybody talks about editing tweets from the standpoint of how it could be used to undermine trust. But think about what a rotten system of trust we have on Twitter right now. Think about the chaos we're living in right now. If you would just let people update their stuff, I think you would be surprised by how many people were doing it in good faith rather than as trolls. That's a, that's a really good point. Because I mean, it's, it's a famous saying, but it's also shown through lots of studies on misinformation that the, you know, falsehoods travel much more quickly than truth does, right? And so if you, there is a tweet that is amplified, and there is not an ability to update that, someone just posts a second secondary tweet, like, 
to your point, Casey, it might not get nearly as much attention or as many eyeballs as the initial one that was erroneous in some way. Um, I also think we're probably, I mean, I think Mike and I, not so much you, Casey, are thinking about this very much from the perspective of like well-meaning journalists. Like here's our experience, but Twitter is much broader and bigger than that. What do you think it looks like, like if you're someone like um, a really, really high profile politician um, and you, you, they tweet a falsehood and, and, or do they tweet something and then they go to correct it after the fact and, and it's not obvious what the original statement was that was made. What, what happens then? What does that look like? So, I mean, thanks to um, Jane Manchin Wong, the researcher who uh, sort of takes apart new uh, APKs to figure out what uh, companies have in store for us, we know Mm -hmm. that Twitter is planning on building an edit uh, history. Like, there will be an audit trail so that if you see an edited tweet, you'll be able to go back in time to see what it said before. This is actually an improvement on the current system where people can just delete what they said before. And unless it was screenshotted, you'll never have any idea, right? So, again, I just mm-hmm. encourage people to think about the ways that such a system could be used to build trust in ways that improve on our current system. That's a good point. Like it does come down to trust and I'm just not a trusting person. I've been on the internet long enough to know that that's just a mistake. <laughs> well, like let's talk about like, so people like use this other example, which is like, um, you know, you, you go viral tweeting a picture of your puppy and everybody's, Oh, look at the puppy. And you know, a hundred thousand people retweet the cute puppy picture. And then uh, you go in behind the scenes and you change it to Hitler, right? Like just to upset everyone, <laughs> um, you know? And, and my point is just like, who, practically has the incentive to do that. Like most people don't want to be associated with like these horrible things that everyone is convinced that they're going to all update their edited tweets to, you know, that said, I do think, you know, Twitter might want to consider some mitigations here. Maybe at least for a testing period, it only rolls out these editing capabilities to some subset of accounts. Maybe it's like only politician, maybe it's only verified users, or maybe it rolls it out to everybody but says like we will revoke this privilege maybe it, it won't roll it out for accounts that are new or don't have a phone number associated with right maybe there should be some sort of extra accountability on you i would just go i would just remind everybody though that this is not true of any other platform like th- these resharing features they're enabled on facebook they're enabled on tumblr and yet we still let people edit those posts and um you know, I mean, I was going to say democracy isn't collapsing all around us. It is. I'm just not sure it's it's because of the editing features on Tumblr and uh, Facebook. But also some of what you're describing <laughs> captures the the essence of Twitter. Like people will watch um, a, a debate or a live sporting event or the Oscars and tweet sort of in real time. Or sometimes we as journalists will cover events, both in person and virtually, and, and like live tweet them, right, for our audiences. And the whole idea is that you're sort of capturing this moment in time. There feels to me to be like a little bit less permanence inherently in Twitter versus other things you're posting on social media where you're like, like you're posting an Instagram photo because you anticipate it's going to be there until you decide to archive the photo or just get off the platform entirely. Um, I would tell that to somebody who's been canceled for something they tweeted 10 years ago. Ask them how ephemeral Twitter is. That's that's an excellent point. I guess that just changes the whole notion of like, it underscores, I guess, that it's a more permanent platform. 
then maybe it was intended to be as a microblogging site in 2006. I mean, I'm pro ephemeral thing. I, I think Twitter should build ephemeral tweets. You know, there are there are plenty of things that I would probably say on Twitter if I knew that they were just going to disappear automatically in, in 24 hours. Um, I'm all for that. Like fleets, but it didn't work out. Yeah, well, my argument with fleets was always like they should just be in the main timeline. Like, why is there a separate feed for disappearing tweets? You know, um, mm-hmm. like, I thought that was just like sort of a total uh, m- misreading of the room there. But again, it's like I, I with so many of the anti edit edit brigade, as I call them, I, I just really think that if you take their arguments to their logical conclusion, you would not be allowed to delete tweets. Like people really think that if you say something, like huh. you have to stand by it forever. And I just don't want to live in that world. I think it's really authoritarian and gross. Uh, all I'm saying is that I think that, that uh, the situation should stay as it is now. I think that what we have now is working and it's fine. That is, now, that is the hottest take on this entire podcast. <laughs> it is not. But speaking of live events and <laughs> ephemerality, I do want to ask uh, the the crew here how we feel about spaces. Because spaces, uh, the audio uh, sort of chat rooms that popped up on Twitter were a response to this boom in audio chat rooms around uh, the internet at the start of the pandemic. And they're still there. And I don't know if they are still sticking with people or if it was a flash in the pan. How do we feel about spaces? I'm a fan. You know, the way I think of that whole world is like a Twitter spaces or a clubhouse room is like a pickup game of podcasting. Like, you know how like, you know, there are pickup games of basketball where you just kind of like go down to the local hoop and see whoever is around and like you play a quick game. That's to me like what a Twitter spaces is for a podcast. You know, there have been times when uh, I think when we found out that uh, Facebook was changing its name and I just like open up spaces and I was like, who's around? Let's talk. And within... I don't know, three minutes, there were like five or six reporters who I know, and they hopped on with me and we kicked it around and a few hundred people listened. And it just felt like a meaningful thing to do, you know? And at the same time, if I had emailed all those same five reporters and said, what's a good time for you to do a podcast? The podcast never would have happened, right? So there is something about the spontaneity that Spaces enables that I think is really cool. And, you know, unlike Fleets, I just think it's obvious that it has a home within Twitter for good. I think wanting to discuss the news is basically the thing that Twitter is, and people are going to want to do that via audio as well as via text. I think we need more chaotic energy in spaces. Um, I would like to hear some more DJ sets, some more live music, because those are the kind of things that you'll find on on Clubhouse, but haven't necessarily made it over to, to Twitter spaces, at least not in my sphere, not in my dabblings. Yeah, I mean, who who knows what's happening over on Clubhouse anymore? That, that <laughs> is pretty dead to me, I have to say. I mean, you're not into NFTs? <laughs> I do love to pump my bags and have other bags <laughs> pumped for me. So maybe I could find more of that on, on space or on clubhouse. Although I do see plenty of that on spaces now too. <laughs> okay. Casey wild card feature for Twitter. Something we haven't discussed yet today. What is something that you would like to see happen on Twitter? Well, I would like to see uh, ephemeral tweets, but maybe that doesn't count because um, you know, they, they've sort of already tried it. But again, like I want you to be able to tweet to your main timeline um, and have it disappear. I like to be able to do local tweets, right? Like there are things like I would love to only talk to my followers who live in San Francisco about San Francisco things, right? It feels a little weird to, you know, broadcast that to people who may be living around the world and don't care. So I think kind of like geographically constrained tweets are are kind of an interesting idea. That's a great um, Mm-hmm. We know that they're working on close friend tweets. So pretty soon you're going to be able to tweet to, you know, maybe they'll limit it at like 150, which is where I think um, Instagram places that cap. But I'm sort of interested to see how that works too. 
And then finally, I uh, would love to like be able to let people sign up for my newsletter, which is hosted on Substack, like directly from my profile. Like you can mm-hmm. actually do that if you run your newsletter on review, which is owned by Twitter. But I think the right thing to do is to enable uh, interoperability, um, uh, which is becoming a big watchword in tech regulation. <laughs> As it should be, because that's how we got here is interoperability. That's right. All right. Well, thanks, Casey, for all your insight and uh, the hottest of takes. We really appreciate it. Yes. the ho- And again, the hottest take, everything is fine. Let's leave it everything as Everything is. is fine. You heard it here. Put my name on it. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our recommendations. Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition. Click Here. And liftoff. Click Here, every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here is the part of our show where we have everybody recommend a thing that they love to our listeners. So Casey, you go first. What is your recommendation? Well, the thing that I find myself recommending to everyone now uh, when I meet them on the street is the show Yellow Jackets. Um, <laughs> you just walk down the street telling people like, pretty Yellow much. Jackets. <laughs> if, if you meet me, the odds I ask you if you've seen Yellow Jackets are like higher than 50%. If you're not familiar, it is a show about a girls' soccer team which gets uh, lost in the wilderness in the 90s. And then 30 years later, there's a second timeline where you see some of the girls sort of going on with their lives, but it's not clear who made it back and what happened while they were there. It stars two incredible actresses who are best known for their work in the 90s, Juliette Lewis and Christina Ricci. And the show does such an amazing job at a lot of things. It's very suspenseful. If you like Lost, you'll love the show. Um, But also the actresses, like as kids and the actresses as adults, they did such a great job, like finding people who can sort of plausibly play, you know, uh, the same person 30 years apart. So anyway, I inhaled it in like three days. I'm desperate to find out what happens in season two. It's on Showtime, which sucks. And then you have to subscribe to Showtime, but like do a free trial, watch Yellow Jackets, cancel. It's amazing. There's great stuff on Showtime. Come on. Got super pumped. You got billions. Never heard of any of them, but I'm sure they're great. <laughs> but I'm uh, very excited about Yellow Jackets. Yes, uh, that's a good. I'll second that. It's a great show. Uh, Lauren, what is your recommendation? Uh, well, once you're done watching Yellow Jackets and you're waiting for season two, and I haven't seen it yet, so now I'm going to watch it. I recommend an old app called Goodreads. Um, this was the result of Mike and I going for a jog last weekend. Sometimes folks. Mike and I go for runs together and we, we, we essentially tape a podcast, but we don't tape it. And, <laughs> and you just never, you just never get to hear it. We just talk a lot of shit for like an hour, like we do now, but you never get to hear it. So anyway, <laughs> we did this last weekend and I was saying to Mike how I hadn't, I think I was just saying how I hadn't really yet achieved my goal of reading as many books this year as I would like to. And I, you know, and I have like an Apple notes that I just sort of keep filled with like book recommendations. Oh, and you were talking about Dennis Johnson. Anyway, and then Mike said, what about, do you use Goodreads? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, you should use Goodreads. It's really great for just keeping tabs and what you want to read, what you're currently reading, what you've already read. It's a little bit of a social network. And then, he, and then Mike said, and you know, and it makes really great recommendations based on what you've been reading. And I said, 
Well, it sounds like the Amazon of book apps, huh? And Mike was like, well, got some bad news for you. It's owned by Amazon, um, <laughs> which I was not aware of. I'm really, really late to Goodreads. But over the past week, I've signed up. I'm Mike and I are now following each other as friends on Goodreads. I've started my list. And uh, and I do really like the app. And I'm finding it, um, I find it like strangely motivating. It's like, oh, yeah, now it's like I, I'm accountable for the stuff I, I plan to read at night. So, um, yeah, I recommend checking out Goodreads. I like that about it. It's also, you know, the thing that I really like about it is that it's easier to find books by authors that you may have never heard of. Like you get a recommendation or you read a book by somebody and you're like, wow, that was great. What else has this person written that other people mm -hmm. have also liked? It's a great way to get into that world. Yeah. And you said that you can click on a genre or author like Elena Ferranti. I've never read but if you click on that author name in Goodreads, it kind of gives you a list of not necessarily the best selling ones, but the ones that are like most popular for a variety of different reasons. Um, gives you a sense of like where to start if you're looking to, to delve into someone's like, oof. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just really wanted to use that word. Nice. Um, Casey, are you on Goodreads? Uh, I am on Goodreads. Um, I don't read as many books as I'd like to because Twitter destroyed my mind, but I have in the past <laughs> used Goodreads. Um, excellent. Have you read the Elon Musk book? Uh, you know, I, I haven't, um, which, uh, you know, shame on me. But again, Twitter has destroyed my mind. So oh, That's right. My only defense is it appears to have destroyed Elon Musk's too. So. That's right. <laughs> Mike, what's your recommendation this week? My recommendation is a simple burger. So... I'm a big fan of burgers and yes, I'm a vegetarian person. So I mainly eat like veggie burgers and impossible burgers and beyond burgers. However, I will say that the burger is not as much about the filling. It's about all the stuff that you put on it. So I have been trying to find good burgers in my neighborhood and every restaurant in my neighborhood does this like crazy burger where they put like jalapenos and they put uh, onion rings on it and they put all kinds of just stuff that does not belong on a burger. So my recommendation, since it's becoming very rapidly becoming grilling season in many parts of the of the country and around the world, I would like to recommend that you get a hamburger on your menu that is a very simple burger. So I'm talking about lettuce, tomato, red onion, mustard, maybe cheese, and maybe something tangy and fermented like a pickle or banana pepper or relish, something along those lines to give it a little bit of tang. But that was really all you need on your burger. You don't need to put onion rings on it. You don't even need to put avocado on it. And I say this as like a big avocado person. It's just, it's too much. It falls apart if you put too much on it. Instagram is like a, a very bad influence on the burger world because these Instagram burgers that have like 18 patties or have like peeps and stuff on top of the burger like those are just making peeps? everybody think yeah yeah like Easter joking. peeps yeah it oh, was dear. Easter last week I know oh, it, I know I understand it's a joke but at the same time people make these elaborate burgers that they take a beautiful Instagram photo of and then what they don't show you is that they go to eat them and they completely fall apart so Get a really good high quality bun, brioche if you're a brioche person, uh, whole wheat if you're a whole wheat person, but a good bun is essential. And then put a minimal amount of toppings on it. And that burger will sing in a way that your Instagram burger wishes it could. That's my recommendation. Simplify your burgers. I have much respect for the specificity of this recommendation. Thank you. And I know that people are going to disagree with me and I don't care. I'm not editing this tweet. <laughs> <laughs> 
See, it's funny you say that as a vegetarian because my thought when I first tried the Impossible Burger some years ago at this point, I think they were at Code Conference several years ago when they were first coming out, was that it was the condiments that actually made it. It was like the, it was that those, I don't know, the combination of flavors and sort of the tanginess of different condiments and onions on top and that sort of thing that made me believe it was a burger, even though it wasn't a burger. Yes, a burger is all about what you put around it. Right. So like take uh, impossible burger is a great example because they do the Whopper impossible Whopper. So you go to Burger King and you get an impossible Whopper and you eat it and you're like, wow, that tastes exactly like a Whopper. It's because it has all the Whopper stuff in it. It has that sugary sauce. It has that bun that's all sugared up. It has all the stuff that they normally put on a Whopper. So it doesn't really matter what the, you know, quote unquote meat tastes like. It's the same thing as if you just take a regular burger and you just put regular normal things on it that are high quality and are not sugared up, it will taste like a good homemade burger, regardless of what kind of burger you use. Also, if you like some specific kind of filling, like a veggie burger or an impossible burger, and you want to actually taste that, the fewer things you put on your burger, the more of that thing that you actually taste. I wonder what Casey's favorite burger topping is. Hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like if it doesn't have a good crunchy pickle, not a not a real burger, you know, you need that acid uh, that acid to cut through the richness. You do. Yeah. Wow. Hard agree on that. Sounds like a good policy for Twitter too. <laughs> you need the acid. Occasionally some of those acidic you, tweets. You think there's not enough acid on Twitter right now? <laughs> well, if Elon buys it, there'll certainly be a whole lot more. <laughs> All right. Well, now I'm starving, so we should end this show. Casey, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you so much for having me, y'all. How do people find you on your Substack? So you can go to platformer.news. You can uh, sign up for free. I'll send you one piece of journalism a week. Uh, or you could pay to subscribe and support independent journalism, which would be an amazing choice you could make, but totally up to you. <laughs> Excellent. Everyone subscribe. It's very good. Thank you for subscribing to Casey's Substack. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. Also, you may have noticed we have a new publishing schedule. This show used to come out on Fridays, and now, from now on, it's going to come out on Thursdays. So you're welcome, Thursday listeners. The show is produced by Boone Ashworth. It was entirely his decision, so blame him if you don't like it. We will be back <laughs> next week. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From P. 